So I have a plan. And this is how, this is how I made the plan. Uh, when I first started to teach uh, Buddha Dharma, which means the teachings that the Buddha taught, I had the example of my teachers before me who had the example, I guess, of their teachers before them. And they taught um, discrete <laughs> topics so that there would be the topic of um, the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path or the Five uh, Afflictive Emotions that we call the Five Hindrances or the Seven Factors of Enlightenment <clears throat> or the Three Characteristics of Experience. Sometimes we used to, there is actually a book of lists that, that is part of the canon. And it makes a lot of sense that there should be a book of lists as part of the canon because, uh, at least according to records, uh, the Buddha lived 300 years before anybody wrote down the teachings of the Buddha. And so they were an oral tradition for 300 years. And um, to keep an oral tradition, it makes sense to keep them as lists, the two this, the three that, the four that. And so for a lot of years, I, I gave those kinds of talks. And then I discovered, I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, but my colleagues began to say about me when we taught together, um, it's good if you don't go first in giving the talks, say, up at the retreat. Because you say the whole thing all the time, and then the, you know it's it's hard to go after you, because you've said the four noble truths and the eightfold path and the and the and the hindrances and the factors of enlightenment, because it became harder and harder for me to see them as discrete from each other. The four noble truths are in fact what the Buddha taught about the truth of what's what's true in the world. What that life is, life is continually challenging because it's continually changing, because we are wired to uh, have preferences of liking and disliking and often sometimes get stuck in our preferences so that we have a kind of imperative that arises in the mind that things be different from how they are because we can't keep them the way we'd like them to be. They just keep changing. We are not in charge. And uh, come to his conclusion that... Uh, the suffering that we experience in our life, not the pain that we have, but the suffering that we have is the inability of the mind to accommodate the changes when all there are really are changes. And that we could actually tra train the mind to a level of wisdom where it held always clarity about this is the way things are and because things are this way and because everyone is challenged to accommodate loss just in the same way that I am, there needs to be a way for me to train my mind to keep that wisdom in the forefront of my mind and not get clouded by the afflictive emotions that come up just because I'm a human being, like anger and lust and greed and confusion and doubt and torpor or lack of energy or fear, all those things that cloud the mind. And so it makes sense to talk about how to keep the mind restored to clarity, not clear, but restored to clarity in, in its constant uh, ex rounds of falling into unclarity and then being restored again to wisdom, clarity and wisdom. And that if we wanted not to suffer in this life, not to have the end of pain, but the end of suffering, we'd have to have 
an ongoing habit of returning the mind to clarity so that wisdom would stay securely there and manifest by um, what is always the, the um, in-life manifestation of wisdom, which is compassion in its various forms, kindness and uh, love and appreciation and consolation. So that's the entire, that's one sentence, and that's the entire, that's the entire what the Buddha taught. But you could make commentary on any part of it. So it's not, so even though it's true that you can say the whole of it in one bite, you can say, you can say, take, you can back up and say, now I want to talk about the Eightfold Path, or now I want to talk about the Four Noble Truths, just to put a little fine point on it. What I thought we would use as our lens for viewing the whole of what the Buddha taught over and over and over again, I thought we would use the lens of the ten perfections of the heart. That's what this chart is about. Actually, in, in uh, the Tibetan tradition, they named six perfections of the heart. In the earlier canon, in the Theravada canon, there are ten perfections, and these are the ten perfections. And... Uh, I like them a lot. I made this chart about 10 years ago. Uh, the chart, I, I made the chart because uh, I am very much, I think, uh, shaped by the fact that when I went to school, I, I, my, the subjects I, I studied in college were chemistry and mathematics, and I am used to charts. I like to make charts. They organize things. I could have done it without a chart, but I like the chart. And... Um, I thought if we had the chart and we did one of these perfections a week, we could use the chart as a kind of a structure to elaborate that particular perfection, look through the perfection and see if we could find all those elements of Buddha Dharma, the noble truths, the hope for um, end of clarity and the expression of it as one of those characteristics of, um, of wisdom. When we come next week, actually, this is an interesting point. I like this very much. When it, next week is the second Wednesday in July. Um, many of you know that on the second Wednesday, we come an hour early. Not everybody comes an hour early. And for some people, it's difficult to get here at 8. So it's all right if you don't come at 8. If you come at 8, we have one class from 8 to 9, and then we have another class from 9 to 11. If you arrive at 8, it's as if we have one class from 8 to 11. We sort of just segue from one to the other. We take a breath or a bathroom break or something, but we continue right along. And the first hour is an hour of particular attention to the... Uh, uh, precepts of morality, which are on the back side of this chart of uh, perfections. I undertake the training to refrain from the taking of life. I undertake the tra training to refrain from stealing, taking that which isn't freely given. I undertake the training to refrain from sexual misconduct. I undertake the training to refrain from lying, from harsh speech, slander, idle speech. I undertake the training to refrain from taking intoxicants, 
which cause carelessness and cloud the mind. And then we say the very important last line, may these precepts of mind be a condition for the attainment of Nibbana. And I un always understand this, uh, and it's sometimes translated in other, in other, in other recitation sheets. May these precepts be the cause of happiness. And I think that's such an important perspective that sometimes when you think about um, commandments for behavior, I think it may be left over from many people's um, overly, uh, perhaps, uh, strict or overly frightening introduction to commandments in whatever religious tradition they were brought up in. We don't normally think about commandments as being the cause of happiness. Um, isn't it true? So don't you know people who say, I gave up that religion because it was too harsh and there was some outer force that was commanding me to be a certain way? We could talk about that because we, and I, I really do want to talk about through the lens of morality next week. But the idea that um, virtuous behavior is its own reward, that its, its reward is happiness, is uh, very clear all through what the Buddha taught. There's this wonderful expression of the bliss of blamelessness, which uh, I think is quite wonderful. The bliss of blamelessness. Not only that you didn't get caught for something, but that... Uh, that's the bliss of not getting caught for something. Uh, but the bliss of blamelessness, of not having a conscience that plagues you. Think for a minute. I'm going to do this next week, but I'm going to come back. I really work hard at trying to stay on, on point. If you could erase any single act from your life, and somebody came with one of those magic marker pens in your mind and said, okay, you have uh, 60 seconds to this, 15 seconds to decide which, do you, if you have an event that you would like to expunge from the record so that it actually never happened, you never said it or did it in your life, so that everybody connected with it doesn't know about it because it expunges from their record as well. It just didn't happen. So think for a minute and see if you have one and if you know what it is. If you know what it is, put your hand up. What if there's more than one? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, this again, who had more than one? So I'm not thinking, and the one I thought of, truth to tell, wasn't horrible. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I'm happy to say nothing. You know, I, I never had the great misfortune. I have, I, I have banged into other people's cars, but never with a person in it. I've parked wrong or got out of a parking space wrong. Never had a parking. I never had a collision with somebody. I should like do some magic thing now. Like, I come out of a culture that when you say something like that, you spit three times. And you say you do spit, 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 and 
which wards it off, you know, but I don't actually believe that it wards it off, but if I weren't here, I would have probably spit it three times. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes things happen. Um, because actually when people sit and when people meditate a lot, their mind tells them a whole list of stuff that they wish they hadn't done. Not, I think, to plague the mind, but because when it comes up in the mind, and I think that's why we just did that exercise, when I bring one of those things up in my mind, it simultaneously, most of the time, if I'm relaxed like I am now, comes up in a context that isn't harsh. You know, it comes up, but then, and I think at the same time, I was 17 years old, you know, and uh, that's, you know, you get like a, a pass a little bit from this vantage point for 17, you don't know. I wish I hadn't, but okay. So I want to look every week through another one of these lenses. Next week, we'll have that first hour of really talking about the precepts, probably with a smaller group, but then everybody will come. But I want to start to try to talk a little bit. I'll talk, and then I'll invite you to talk a little bit amongst you. Uh, just if, if we can see through the the... through the lens of generosity, just as a way of um, organizing the mind. The practice of generosity develops the habit of sharing, develops the habit of sharing by experiencing the joy of not feeling needy, the ease of a peaceful mind, the possibility of the end of suffering, the third noble truth. Yeah, I always think about uh, the line, the song line, seek the world over, there's one thing you'll find, there's nothing more rare than a satisfied mind. You know, that it's a gospel line of a song. That That's what I want, is a satisfied mind. I was thinking that last week when I was teaching. Um, there was a retreat up the hill. Both Donald and I were teaching, and... Uh, I think you'll be pleased to know we did really well. I, it was the first retreat that we ever did. Anybody here was on that retreat? There you are. Mark was there. Anybody else? We did good, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> it was the first retreat that we taught at Spirit Rock that, you, that taught the practices of mindfulness and loving-kindness meditation. But instead of telling stories about the Buddha, we told uh, stories out of um, Western scripture. We told, instead of using the idiom of um, the Buddha going forth and uh, into homelessness and achieving enlightenment, not being held hostage by the plagued mind of an unenlightened person, we talked about the metaphor of um, going out from Egypt going out from a place of slavery into a place of freedom, which is the metaphor of the, of the second, third, fourth, well, it's actually of every book of the Hebrew Bible after, um, not every book, certainly of the whole Torah after the first, after Genesis, beginning with Exodus, the next four books of the Torah are about the the really the wandering in the desert because going out of freedom in that metaphor 
out of slavery and into freedom doesn't mean you've arrived at the promised land either. And the whole next four books of the Bible are about wandering in wilderness and getting stuck in wilderness and then out of wilderness, making some progress, stuck in wilderness, out of wilderness, which is, I think, what most of us, uh, what anyway I am doing all of my life. I am uh, quite clear about where I want to be going, and I don't find myself to be as enslaved by the habits of my mind as I used to be, not so caught by relentless worrying, not so caught by the imperative that things be otherwise, but nevertheless, from time to time, caught in stuff and, you know, one false move and, you know, the wilderness is back. <laughs> I, I, I was actually very interested last week in the word bewildered. We become bewildered and we forget where we're going and bewildered. So that's what we taught. We taught in that, in that particular idiom and we taught in the idiom of Psalms. And I'm thinking about that, about the possibility of the end of suffering, the ease of a peaceful mind. The second line of uh, Psalm 23, the first line is, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is the second line. And the root of the Hebrew word for want, what it actually means in exact translation, is I will not be, nothing will be lacking to me. I will not have a lack, and, the, the, which is very close to uh, a satisfied mind. Don't need anything. Um, one of my friends gave me a, uh, a cartoon framed some years ago. It's a Sylvia. Do you know that uh, the Sylvia cartoons by, what's her name? Um, uh, Michelle, uh, Nicole Hollander. So Sylvia is typing in this in in the in the um, in the cartoon, and you can hear you can see by the balloon that someone from the next room has said. Um, well, first of all, she's typing a list of remarks you want sometime to be able to make in this life, <laughs> and the first remark is yes, it is unusual to. Uh, win the Nobel Prize and an Olympic gold medal in the same year. <laughs> and uh, the second thing is, um, um, yeah, uh, uh, I'd like, uh, I'll take those uh, leather pants in the size too. <laughs> um, some other things that you might like to say. But then the bottom, on the list, on the bottom of the list um, is, uh, no, because the, the, the question uh, over on the top in a balloon, you see someone in the next room, someone saying, uh, Mom, going to the store, is there anything that you'd like? And down on her list it says, uh, no thanks, I have everything I need. So that's one of the remarks that you'd like to make in your life. Um, I have thought about that back and forth because I think I've, I'm pretty sure I've told you this. My good friend Mary and I used to teach retreats together for decades. And we'd get together, I'd taught classes together. And we were sitting in my house one day and preparing for a class. And we rushed out the door because we suddenly looked down. It was late. So we grabbed our books. We left and we were going to class. And I looked down and I said, wait, I don't think I have everything I need. And she said in her way that she's very firm about answers, she said, sweetheart, you're never going to have everything you need. 
And I, th I found that very uplifting at the time. I thought, it, I thought it to mean, you know, who couldn't have prepared more? Who couldn't have brought more stuff? Look, I've got tons of stuff on my lap here. I haven't even begun to open it yet. Everybody could prepare more, bring more stuff. So, I, so what I took from that is uh, you just go with what you've got. And it was very uplifting. But like 10 or 20 or 30 years went by and I realized that uh, I always have everything that I need. That, it, that if I have the right mindset, then I have everything that I need. And whether or not I bring more stuff is extra. So that's gone through my mind a lot. <coughs> the, the, um, the habit of generosity, uh, I, th I think about as being the habit of having such a peaceful mind that it doesn't cling that is able to, if you think about generosity in the normal way that we think about it, like uh, giving funds to uh, uh, pay for meals for the homeless or bringing books that are just in your bookcase that somebody else could read. Um, it's all the habit of knowing, I don't need this. That it might not even be the habit of generosity. It might be the habit of closet cleaning, you know, that... <laughs> that uh, it, might, it might not be motivated by the need of others. It might be motivated by my need to put some, uh, organize my bookshelves, which are bulging over. And I have to think, what is motivating this? And does it count as generosity if I'm just cleaning my bookshelves? Is that, is that just my personal improving my home decor? Or am I actually... Uh, feeling good about giving things, uh, giving other people something they might like. Is it both? Do we ever have motives that are not so pure? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, we have motives that are not so pure. Generosity is supported by realizing that life is inevitably challenging, which is the first noble truth, and discovering the relief that comes with the absence of self-centered preoccupation. When you get start to be interested in somebody else's well-being, in general, it's a relief. In general, it's a relief. So somebody, one of my friends was telling me about a... Um, some residents for older folks. I have a lot of I have a lot of conversations these days about residents for older folks because, first of all, I have friends who are getting themselves on lists, and I have a lot of friends whose parents are in those kind of residences. So I'm talking a lot about those kinds of residences. And that it's like who lives here? Who needs a handrail? You know that. Uh, it's like the next topic of conversation. But anybody, someone was telling about a certain place, a residence, where you could have um, an animal. You could have a cat or a dog. And how much better people did in those residences because they were taking care of somebody else. And that it gave them something to do. I have to walk my dog. I have to feed my dog. I have to go out with the dog. That it was... Um, um, an antidote to self-centered preoccupation, that uh, it was not only pleasant for them, but it, was, it sort of boosted their, uh, their sense of well-being, kept them healthier longer, because someone else caught their attention, and then they weren't preoccupied with themselves.
So there's a there's a new uh, cartoonist. I don't know how to say his name. It's S I P R E S S Cypress or Cypress, but I keep show I keep seeing him these days in the New Yorker. So here's uh, you can't probably see it from there, but uh, there's been a lot of um, there've been a lot of Cypress cartoons about meditation. So he knows a little bit about it. Uh, the last time I saw you, I brought the cartoon where two people were coming out of. It's called like the Whole Spirit Meditation Center, and you see a couple emerging from with their mats or their pillow under their arms. So you see they've been at a meditation class, and one is saying to the other, "Seems to me that meditation is just worrying without the words." So, but. But I, I, I actually thought it, 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 that was a very good definition of it because if you worry without the words, it gives your mind a little bit of a rest. And when you come back to the words, they appear a little bit different. You see them a little bit different. So I, I thought that's not so bad. It's supposed to be funny, but I, you know, it was funny. Anyway, so here is a couple, and they're watching television together. And uh, you, what you hear, you see the television is on, and what you hear is the voiceover that's saying what's going to happen now. This week on The Amazing right Race to Enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Barb and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's, that's very good, isn't it? Huh? I was thinking somebody should take this to a Kinko's, make it bigger, and then make one for everybody. I will read it, but wouldn't that be fun for everybody to have it? This week on The Amazing Race to Enlightenment, can Jim and Susie achieve right mindfulness? And will Barb and Candy be eliminated for relentless clinging to the self? So uh, there you go. Huh? Yeah, oh yeah, we had fridge magnets last time. So these are the other things that I thought about with the, the generosity. I was thinking about I'm trying to think about how to make this this connection to where I want to go with this. The biggest generosity, I think, is not generosity of stuff, but generosity of spirit. The generosity of spirit that gives up the notion that the other person is the enemy and is able to really keep the wisdom that we are all suffering and confused when we, do wrong, when we do hurtful things, and that the best thing we can do is take care of each other, pray for each other. I've just skipped over the whole of mind training to the end of it. There's a, the, re, the reason, I think, for this is I've just read, I've read three books in a row for, that have profoundly filled my, filled my mind. First one is called uh, the time of our singing. 
by Richard Parker. The second one uh, is, um, well, four. I've read Team of Rivals by Doris Kearns Goodwin. I read I Am the Middle Still of Reading No Ordinary Time by Doris Kearns Goodman. Goodwin, Goodwin, who is the No Ordinary Team of Rivals is about Abraham Lincoln. It's about the fact that uh, as soon as he was elected, improbably, because he was the least known of all the candidates running, and it was kind of a fluke of circumstances that he was nominated for the presidency and that he won. The other people running against him were much better known. They'd all had much more prestigious trainings. They'd gone to wonderful, they'd gone to law school. They were more prominent. He was as uh, a lawyer in uh, Illinois who had read for the bar, who never went to school in his whole life. The stories that you hear about Lincoln actually in teaching himself by candlelight actually are true. They seem like one of those fables that people sometimes tell. But actually true. He taught himself everything, taught himself to read in school, and he read for the bar and he passed, and he was a lawyer and actually had lost some important cases. And by a series of flukes, really, he was nominated and elected. What he immediately did was appoint the people who had uh, run against him in the primaries, the most prominent people, uh, as his um, uh, cabinet. And people said to him, how could you have appointed uh, Seward or uh, I've forgotten the name of the other person that he appointed. He said, that they said these terrible things about you. Look, so-and-so said this about you. This one said that about you. And he said, well, yeah, they did. He said, but you know, they wanted so much to be president. They were, you know, they were they were running for president. They wanted so much to be president, so they said that. But they're very talented people, and I need the most talented people on my team. And so he got uh, the 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 phrase "absence of malice," uh, which came out of his second inaugural address. He lived a life of the absence of malice. He said, it doesn't do any good. He said, it doesn't do any good at all, absence of malice, to have malice. I need these people on my side. Even when they were on his side, they did, they sometimes tried to undermine him. And he'd hear from so-and-so that somebody was saying such-and-such such about him and that he should get rid of him. He said, well, no, I'll talk to him. I'll bring it up at some point. Absolutely, I read it and I was awed tremendously by his capacity to say, well, that was what was happening at the time, but it's not happening now, and I need that. I so much liked uh, the way Doris Kearns Goodwin wrote that I uh, began to read No Ordinary Time, which is the story of Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt um, in his years in the presidency. You see, I'm reading, by the way, in a Kindle these days, which uh, not that I, you know, I do not work for Amazon, so this is not an ad. But I love this Kindle. I have 23 books in this Kindle. And I read one, then I read the other, then I read the other. When my eyes get tired, I can change the font and make it bigger. I can switch over and read my poetry book. And I travel without books. I travel with this, which is very light, 
I lie in bed and read it. I love this. I talked about uh, yesterday. The only thing with this Kindle is uh, it might be antithetical to my habit of uh, thinking things over. Because yesterday I was talking to someone on the telephone who said a great book is um, uh, alive to tell, or I'll, I'll look it up right away. Because, I, because they said alive to tell. I said, oh, no kidding. My Kindle was right next to me. So I could just type in alive to tell over here. Uh, as we were talking on the phone and she's telling me about it, then I push this button and it says, here it is, $8. You want to buy it? I say, yes. I just push. So it's a, really, you don't have time to think it over. And then it says, thank you, Sylvia, for it is now in your Kindle. And it's it, uh, partly, I'm so moved by the magic of it. I don't even have to sign in, like on Amazon. You know, like, I, like they know who I am. I could be anybody in the world. They say, thank you, Sylvia. And I didn't tell them I was Sylvia, but somewhere in the world, there's a machine that my machine calls, and their machine knows that I'm Sylvia. And when I, I then look, it's in my Kindle one minute later, and in my email, at that same time, there's a little notice from Amazon that you have been billed $8 on such and such a credit card. So wherever I go, somebody says, oh, I'm reading a good book, tick, 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 tick. So uh, I'm carrying around a lot of good books. So I'm reading, uh, you can actually. It says, after you do that, it says, whoops, it says that you just ordered this. If you didn't want it, let us know right now. If that was an accident, you can tell us. And you can also order the first chapter for free and then make a decision. Ah. <laughs> but you can order the first chapter free. Yeah, yeah. You can make notes in it. See, you underline like that. You underline, and then you look in. Uh, you look at. Well, I'm gonna. I can read you from my underline, but it also files my underlines in another part, so I can look up the underlines. I'm. 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 I'm just. I just this morning early was perfecting the art of underlining because that's what I was missing. So I'm reading, I'm reading uh, No Ordinary Time, and it's about, uh, I'm reading now the period before the United States has formally entered into World War II, but the, the war has, um, the war has broken out in Europe at this point. And two days after the invasion, it said the French, uh, the Fra the, uh, France was invaded, and France, it said, might really need to uh, 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 capitulate right away because it said more than 92,000 soldiers were already dead, and it was clear that the French could not stay in the fight much longer. It was two days into the war, 92,000. I can't get my mind around that number. 92,000 young men in a couple of days. And it says at the same time, the British Army was trapped on the beaches at Dunkirk, and um, more than 60,000 British soldiers lay dead <coughs> and captured or wounded. And uh, the remaining 350,000, many of them dying for starvation, from starvation, appeared doomed. So such huge numbers. And 
I had just finished reading uh, uh, The uh, Team of Rivals, which is a really another, uh, in addition to the story of Lincoln, the story of the Civil War, where huge, impossibly huge numbers of men died on a battlefield in a single day. In a single day. In a single day. There's a story in, in Buddhist history which may or may not be true. Maybe it's folklore, maybe it's true. It seems to have an historical basis that at some point uh, after the death of the Buddha, maybe a couple of hundred years after the death of the Buddha, don't know when exactly King Ashoka was the king of a very large piece of what is now India, uh, that there was a huge battle and Ashoka had actually previously won lots of, enlarged his kingdom. And the story is of Ashoka walking through a battlefield the day after a battle and seeing just the carnage of the day before, men and horses, and uh, being so overwhelmed by the carnage. And then seeing uh, a monk walking through the battlefield, according to the story, with um, peaceful visage. So you wonder sometimes whether those stories are they actually happened or they're a metaphor for, it doesn't matter. I hope both, I hope it actually happened and I hope it appeared in Ashoka's mind as the realization that um, it's possible to have a different view of enmity or of people who have different ideas than you do and that uh, this particular way of being, of having war and killing each other, doesn't have, to, doesn't have to continue. And it's said that Ashoka was in that moment converted to ending war, and that he then ruled his kingdom from then on, according to the precepts of the Buddha, where people are not misused and abused or exploited. <coughs> I think there's documented truths. I think I saw that somewhere last year that there's documented records of the reign of Ashoka following that time. That his mind was really changed around from an understanding that had, you know, ruled the rest of his life. And it's such an important turnaround, you know. I think to myself, we read as. as um, uh, again, p part of uh, Isaiah in uh, the Hebrew Bible, we read, and we will, we will study war no more, and people will turn their plows into swords into plowshares, swords into plowshares. But it requires a moment in which everybody says, what are we doing? Let's not do this anymore. This doesn't work. This is a terrible thing. And in our time, I, you know, I'm looking around at the age of people here. I remember reading the newspaper in early August of 1945 with my mother and looking at the picture of the mushroom cloud over Hiroshima. And I was nine years old that summer. My mother was distraught about that having happened. And uh, the general understanding was, well, it had to happen because so many other People were going to be killed if the war went on. It seems like that wasn't true. It comes out now that actually there were 
negotiations behind the scenes suing for peace. Uh, but at that point, there was no stopping the trying out of the bomb. But I think there's a way in which we're all here because somehow we have a confidence that the world could turn around and we could stop exploiting and abusing. That Nobody has actually given up on the idea. However much, it seems like a really an impossible idea. The other book I read recently, oh, the, the, the Time of Our Singing, which I told you, Richard Parker. Again, I, I, I want to put this all in the generosity of seeing past a limited view, seeing how, it, how difficult it is not to see people who are different for us, from us as other. And without too much, uh, The Time of Our Singing is a, is a fiction novel it's about a couple who meet on the uh, mall in front of the Lincoln Memorial on that day in 1939 that Marian Anderson sang her first American concert. She had toured in Europe in all the great concert halls. She uh, had been denied the use of Constitution Hall because she was an African-American woman. Um, the Daughters of the American Revolution refused her uh, producers the, the, the chance to uh, rent Constitutional Hall. So, so two things happened. First of all, Eleanor Roosevelt resigned from the Daughters of the American Revolution in protest and helped to facilitate that concert outdoors uh, in front of the Lincoln Memorial. And 75,000 people came and it was the largest gathering of people on the mall up to that time in history. Uh, may have been the largest up to the last 10 years when there were several million person marches. But so, the, it's, so part of the story is true. The history is true. The fiction part is that two people meet uh, at the concert. One of them is an African-American woman from Baltimore who's a wonderful singer and um, uh, trained as a teacher comes from a Baltimore family. Her father is, in fact, a family physician in Baltimore, which is unusual for an African-American man, but in the, in the African-American community in Baltimore in the 1930s and 40s. She uh, bumps into, sort of literally, um, a newly emigrated uh, German-Jewish physicist who has left Germany just before it got impossible to leave, and his, his coming to the United States, one understands, comes to understand, was made possible because the United States was looking for scientists who were working on thermonuclear energy. So he is a scientist at Columbia. And he has a part, actually, although very small, you, you get to feel, in the designing of that bomb that fell in Hiroshima. And, the, and, the, and they marry. They meet and they marry. And they are dedicated to the idea that their children will be raised beyond race. Race will not. They live on the Upper West Side. It's probably the most progressive place. And, and uh, the things that happen to them are so painful to read. The, the amount of... This is 1939 is in my lifetime. And 
the 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 the, the bigotry, the, the the racism that they encounter. Uh, I, I I read it, and you know, I thought I grew up there. I know about this sort of stuff, but. I think to myself, maybe I have to really be constantly re-shocked to know that, the, again, to be alert to it, not to be always not only guilty of it by accident, but guilty by not working hard enough to get it changed. You know that. But also, I, I, I was the, the book stays with me because uh, there are some tremendous animosities even in. Everybody's family, where you, th you think, oh, these people should rise above it, these people should rise above it. And then you think you can't know how hard, I can't know how hard it is to change my mind about something. And, the, and really what I wanted to talk about mostly is the generosity of giving up a fixed idea. One of these weeks I'll bring for everybody a copy of the the uh, Buddha's teaching on loving kindness, and one of the last lines of that teaching, it's a one side of one page. It's short. Begins. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. But beginning with who know the path of peace, it ends with by not clinging to fixed views. The pure-hearted one is not born again into this world. Is not born into the realm of suffering. So you think about who is the pure-hearted one. So just one more. Th I hope I am not boring you with my, with my Kindle. But um, wait, wait. We want to go to, oh, I turn, it turns itself off, see, if you don't use it. So now, but it turns itself back to where you were. Uh, the, the, here we go. All right, now we need the, uh, we need the home page, and we need to, Left to Tell is the name of the other book that I read since yesterday. Um, it's not terribly long. It's um, Left to Tell because uh, Imakule Ilibakawa is her name, is, is left, is... Um, is who in this case was, was left to tell. Her entire family, she's Rwandan, now living in, uh, now living in uh, the United States. And all her brothers and sisters and her mother and her father were killed in that terrible period in Rwanda between the Hutus and the Tutsis. And, I never understood so well what was the beginning of that. And even now, I, I, I got it in my Kindle yesterday afternoon. I read it all day, and I read it this morning, and I finished it. And even now, I think to myself, so what actually started it? But sort of on not much beginning, an inflammatory kind of virus went through the minds of a, a significant numbers of people who then rose up and killed their neighbors, and literally their neighbors, indiscriminately, people that they'd known all along, whom they'd known all along, were in fact of different tribal heritage. It's as if I thought to myself, it's as if, who could imagine that suddenly in San Jose or in Sacramento, suddenly on one morning, 
it would go through the population like a virus. And the most terrible, um, um, I mean, all killing is terrible, but machete killing, you know, so without even guns. And here's this woman who, who lives because she and uh, a whole group, seven or eight other women, are hidden in a, in a bathroom, literally, in a local pastor's house who puts them in a closet in, in this bathroom, close, locks the door, and pushes a chest of drawers in front of the bathroom door so that all the many, many times that the marauding crowds come through looking for people to kill, they don't know that there's anybody, be, they don't know that there's a door behind there. And in this most impossible situation where there's no room even for them to sit down at the same time, these women all survive for weeks. At some point, they were up to 49 days and are freed, finally, and just with the most incredible luck get smuggled out to uh, French peacekeepers and eventually... She is, by the time she's, she's, this happens, she's in her third year of university and talked about how beautiful Rwanda was as a country before, how peaceful, how loving people were with their neighbors. And this inflammatory illness takes over people's minds. She comes to the United States, comes to the United States and has married, has two children, uh, tells a story. But all the while, talking about how her faith sustains her. So um, depending on your relationship with God uh, or what you feel is God, this may or may not speak to you, but if it doesn't, in terms of God, if you would think about it as the power to not have one's own sense that violence is, uh, is always a mistake of the mind. However... She said, I, I kept thinking to myself, at one point she said, I realized that I hated them so much and I was in so much pain. I realized suddenly I prayed to God that I should not be in so much pain. And she said, and then I realized that the killers are good people, but right now evil has a hold on their hearts. In the middle. I told John Paul that I would pray for his family. Then I realized that he probably knew what had happened to my parents and my brothers. I've lost that half of the bookmark. I prayed that God would touch the captain's heart with his forgiveness. I prayed again for the killers to put down their machetes. I prayed for God to touch the killer with the power of his love. I didn't blink. This is at one point someone is really facing her with a machete. We stared into one's other's, each other's eyes for what seemed like a lifetime. Finally... He put down his machete and continued on. I realized, she said, looking at him, that this person was now the victim of his victims, destined to live in torment and regret. I was overwhelmed with pity for the man. Mm. The name of this is uh, Left to Tell. Left to Tell. Um... So really, when I wanted to think about generosity, the last time I really thought a lot about 
these parameters, which is 10 years ago when I made that chart, I really thought more about giving away stuff. You know, I, th I thought about generosity as the kind of generosity where we think about supporting the homeless and the normal things, leaving Donna for Spirit Rock, the normal things about generosity. And somehow, I, I, when I was preparing for coming today, I realized that the only thing that kept coming up in my mind was the generosity of giving up an idea that there are enemies in the world. That somehow my thinking has changed around in the last 10 years. Uh, a book came in the mail for me. This wasn't on the, uh, on the Kindle. They don't have everything in the world, so I, I needed to buy this one. This is, uh, and I bought it because I, I uh, uh, at a distance, I know Marilyn Yalom, and I'm interested in what she wrote. And uh, this is a book called The American Resting Place. Uh, and it's really a history of the United States through its uh, cemeteries. And uh, it's, it's quite interesting. It's very, uh, it's moving. And at one point she talks about... Um, um, she's talking about uh, cemeteries in Louisiana. No, it's St. Louis. Cemeteries in St. Louis. And um, Calvary Cemetery uh, in St. Louis, where Tennessee Williams is buried, um, uh, Kate Chopin, uh, General William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, then it says, and those concerned with African-American history pay homage to the former slaves Dred Scott and his wife Harriet Scott, co-plaintiffs in the historic Dred Scott case. Scott had lost his plea for freedom before both the state Supreme Court of Missouri in 1852 and the U.S. Supreme Court in 1857. Subsequently, he and his wife were purchased by Taylor Blow, who then set them free. Dred Scott's tombstone reads, Dred Scott, born about 1799, died September 17, 1858, freed from slavery by his friend, Taylor Blow. Um, in our, you know, it's 160 years ago. It's not, it's, it, it's really in... You know, not our lifetimes, but almost my great-grandfather's lifetime. How could somebody have a slave of a person? What I noticed is, I, as I, I, this just came yesterday, and um, I, and it's got, it has, among other things, various tombstone writings, and the one that I wanted to find right now, but I don't see, is. Uh, the one that, of some woman who uh, had uh, established um, who had established a lot of orphanages, and it had her name and her birth and death day, uh, and then it said she will be remembered by her deeds. Mm -hmm. And I think to myself about that's really the way we get remembered, is by our deeds. I don't, you know, I, don't, I, I hope that all of this doesn't sound macabre for you. Uh, does it sound too macabre or too grim? 
I'm, I'm kind of interested. I didn't know how this morning would actually come out because I wanted to talk about generosity. And I could not get my mind off uh, the generosity of giving up, having it the way that I'm comfortable with, the way that I know, the view that I have, the limitations that I have. Say, okay. Uh, and say, what, what really is the real generosity? Is it the giving of stuff? Or maybe even the giving of the view that I've done enough, or the giving of the way of the view that I, you know, I'm not responsible. It's not from me. Um, one of the um, one of the quotes that Donald used last uh, week in our teaching together was um, a rabbi, a sage of the second century, who said, um, "It is not incumbent upon you to finish the job." but neither can you desist from doing it. So uh, I think to myself, maybe, maybe what I wanted to say is as long as there is uh, injustice in the world, it's a small world. Rwanda's not that far away. Nothing is that far away. 1858 is not that far away. There's bucolic here we come this morning, and... Uh, there was a, a, a mother doe standing right over there. Did you see her? She has, two, uh, uh, she has two fawns, which are getting quite big. They're almost as big as she is, but they still have their spots. And uh, she's walking along and there and munching and grazing, and they were following her in that cute way. Somebody told me last week, by the way, that there was a, a fawn up on the ridge with triplets, I have never seen that. And I saw right away that my mind said, oh, I want to see that. You know, like it, it, the, 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 that the mind lurches forward with greed. Okay, triplet, uh, twins is good, but if there are three up there, I want to see that. You know? It's never a satisfied mind. If there's something better, I want it. But I, I, the, the person I came in with was remarking about that uh, that doe does not startle. Uh, you know, she she lives here, and and we talk about that all the time here. My friend and colleague Sally Clough lives across the road in Woodacre. She said when she opens her backyard and there's a deer in there munching away, they leap over the fence and they run away. I said, but our deer, our deer, who have lived here now twenty years since we are here, are acculturated to peacefulness. Nobody here raises their voice. We, you know, we don't have alarming things happen. Nothing uh, assaultive or frightening has ever happened from us here. So, I mean, they're, they're probably, I hope, appropriately afraid of the lion that lives up there. There's, there are mountain lions up there. But not of us. They behave like cows. They just kind of graze. And it really, I think to myself, it's a, the, the idea of a peaceable kingdom and how we actually are spokespeople of that. So, you know, I want to talk about this. It's on my mind. And I don't know a better way to talk about generosity. So, there we go. You'll tell me if it gets too lugubrious, huh? There's a picture on the back of a, of a gravestone that says, unknown, December 7th, 1941.
Uh, another big day with another big number of, of people. Someone told me the story in the last couple of weeks of, quite tragically, of her daughter having been um, killed in, a, in an automobile accident when she was 14 years old. But it was mid-afternoon, and she said, all of a sudden, you look out, and there are two policemen walking up your walk, and you know that this is a calamity. And during the time of the, of the Second World War, which is what I remember, and I remember stories about the people who were at home and look out, and they see an army service vehicle drive up and people get out. And people had stars hanging in their windows. And they had silver stars on a little banner for people serving and gold stars for people who had been killed. Imagine that. And still... So it's a lot to talk about because it just comes in my mind. And conquer, that we say when we sing the Star Spangled Banner, and conquer we must when our cause it is just. Is there a cause that's just? That justifies for the merit that we accrue for being here together and for thinking about these matters together for our determination collectively to dedicate our hearts to making a world that is peaceful as well as just. May the merit we accrue be offered for the well-being of all beings everywhere. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. So bring your paper next week, okay? Everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.